This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. Lucia thought it was a miracle anytime anyone wrote something. You know, that's sort of like how I try to approach every student writing. Before I get into like, hey, you know, this doesn't make any sense, or you know, you have too many fragments. <laughs> you know, first I'm like, this is a miracle. Welcome back to Working. I'm your host, Isaac Butler. And I'm your other host, June Thomas. June, I believe this is the first time this year that we have seen each other. It's over Zoom. I'm looking at a blurred out image of, <laughs> I, it's, it's a living room, I think. Uh, how are you doing so far? How's the year been? Oh, it's been good. I'm in the kind of final weeks before my first book delivery deadline. And so dun, it's been, dun, dun, dun. Yes, it's been really cold. And so it's been actually quite good to be in a place where the sensible thing is to stay in and huddle down and just be at your desk. Uh, so that's been good. Speaking of cold, dark, but cultured places, how was your trip to London? It was great. It was oh. warmer in London than it was in New York because there was that like Arctic snap or whatever it's called. And so mm -hmm. it was in the 50s in London and it was like mm -hmm. seven in New York, which did not make me <laughs> afraid for the future of the planet at all. No, it's all. Few things about London. Uh, the sun rises at 8 a.m. and sets at 3 p.m., so the <laughs> yes. day is very short. Yes. Uh, people drink too yes. much, and groceries yes. are shockingly cheap. But enough about me. <laughs> Let's talk about whose voice we heard at the top of the episode. Well, Isaac, that was Chip Livingston, and he's a poet, a writer of short fiction, a teacher, and an editor. Oh, that's fascinating. So why did you want to talk to Mr. Chip Livingston? Well, it was something that he edited. He recently compiled a collection of letters that were exchanged between writers Lucia Boleyn and Kenward Elmsley. Now, I'm not going to pretend that I had ever read those writers. In fact, I hadn't even heard of Kenwood Elmsley. But over the course of reading this book, I learned that they are interesting and important artists. And that was an opinion that was just cemented in the interview that you're about to hear. And... As someone who just really enjoys reading other people's correspondence, I thought it would be interesting to learn more about what that work of compiling a book of letters entailed. So that was why I wanted to talk to him. But over the course of preparing for the interview, I watched several videos of him reading his work, and I learned that he's a really great writer. Chip's mother was Creek, and he writes about Native people in a really interesting way. So after speaking with him, I want to spend more time with his writing. I think we should also say before we get into the episode, because it's discussed very briefly within it, um, maybe too brief within the episode to explain what is really yeah. going on. There's a kind of true crime case surrounding Kenward Elmsley and a mysterious figure named Mr. Oz. Can you just give us the like the rundown on yeah. what the heck that is? Yeah. So as we'll hear, Kenwood Elmsley, who's one of the correspondents featured in Chip's book, he had a lot of family money. His grandfather was Joseph Pulitzer. And he also lived to 93. He only died in June 2022. And he suffered from dementia in his final years. And as is unfortunately all too often the case, some of the people who he had hired to help him took advantage of the relationship and stole from him. One person who is not mentioned in the book because he came into Kenwood's life after the correspondence ended, stole a Warhol and a Duchamp and literally millions of dollars. And that guy was prosecuted and incarcerated and Chip had to testify at his trial. But there were other assistants, Mr. Oz is one of them, who came before that person who also took advantage of Kenward in less dramatic ways. They didn't take millions. And a couple of such incidents are mentioned in the book. Now, for legal reasons, their names aren't provided, hence 
Mr. Oz, which is how Lucia and Elmsley referred to him in the letters. Uh, so, yeah, it's a brief mention, but it's kind of, I feel like, a portent of something that was unfortunately going to be a big thing in, in Kenwood's life. And uh, if you're a Slate Plus subscriber, what's what's your little bonus today? Well, Chip knew both Lucia and Kenwood. He lived in Kenwood's house and he came to know many of his friends, some of whom were really preeminent American poets. And through that relationship, Chip became interested in poetry and became a poet. So I asked him about how that interest developed and what he did to further it. Well, that sounds really great. And if you're a Slate Plus member, that little extra something something is waiting for you at the end of this episode. Uh, So before we get started, I just wanted to say we really love our listeners. We really love hearing from our listeners. We love corresponding with our listeners. We really love knowing what is going on in our listeners' lives. So if you've got a creative problem, that you need solving. If you've got a guest that you would like to hear on the show, if you've got your own solution to a creative problem you think our listeners should know about and that we should be discussing on this show, please drop us a line. We'd love to hear from you. It's working at slate.com or 304-933-WORK. You can call and leave a voicemail. And, you know, frankly, I've got some projects I could procrastinate on. So, you know, this is a perfect time for me to delve deep into listener correspondence and voicemails. Please send them along. Now, let's listen in on June's conversation with writer, editor, and teacher Chip Livingston. Chip Livingston, thank you for joining us on Working. I wanted to talk to you about your work curating and editing Love Lucia, The Letters of Lucia Berlin and Kenwood Elmsley, which I really enjoyed. Perhaps you could begin by telling us who Lucia and Kenwood were and how you came to edit a book of their correspondence. Thank you, June. Lucia Berlin was a fiction writer, a short story writer, almost exclusively short stories, um, although she was working on a memoir at the time of her death. She was not very well known during her lifetime, but when a posthumously collected book of her stories called A Manual for Cleaning Woman was published like 10 or 11 years after she died by FSG, she became an overnight sensation and, you know, a bestseller in the United States and abroad. And, you know, a lot of people were just so curious about who was this writer. She's often called the American Chekhov, or um, she is referred to in the same veins as Raymond Carver. But, you know, a very important now American writer or U.S. writer who's held up, you know, very highly among letters in the United States. Kimward Elmsley, on the other hand, had a different kind of career. He was a poet, a librettist, which means he wrote the lyrics for operas. He also wrote the books and lyrics for Broadway musicals. And he had a very eclectic life, a very eclectic group of friends. He was a member of the New York School of Poets. He had a long relationship with the artist Joe Brainerd, who was also a poet. So, you know, Kenward was known in opera for several of his works with Thomas Pastieri and Ned Roram. He was known on Broadway and off-Broadway for a musical, The Grass Harp, that he wrote based on a novel by Truman Capote. But that's, you know, sort of who they were. And I studied with Lucia Berlin when I was getting my master's in fiction writing at the University of Colorado in Boulder, Colorado. And when I was her student, she gave me a book of Kenward's poetry. And she said, you know, she thought that I would, you know, resonate with some of the contents and with who he was. And she often showed me his letters and his postcards. She read them to our classes because she just thought so highly of his letters as well as his poetry and his lyrics. So she had given me some of his books when I was her student. And then several years after I had graduated, she called me up and said, 
what are you doing for work? And would you consider moving to New York and working as an assistant for my friend Kimward Elmsley? And I was actually looking for work. And um, I had recently moved back to the States from the Virgin Islands and was sort of looking, where am I going to go? And I was like, oh, perfect, you know, maybe. Can, a, can <laughs> right, being right. Assistant, a poet's assistant afford me to live in New York? And then, you know, Lucia said, well, you know, he's the grandson of Joseph Pulitzer, and I think right. he has plenty of money. And also, I think the job comes with a live-in apartment <laughs> in his house, yeah. Yeah. which it did, you know. So I went out to New York and met Kenward and got along, you know, great with him immediately and felt comfortable and thought, you know, this is a really good place for me. And before that, you know, I had mostly exclusively written fiction and nonfiction. But then I was suddenly in this world of poets and a very particular kind of poets. Um, so while I was living in New York with Kenward, I was not only exposed to a lot of poets and his friends, um, but I also started taking classes in poetry and got a second master's degree <laughs> from Brooklyn College in poetry. And oh that God, sort Chip, of master's of degree. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And in that also that master's degree was sort of, you know, it, we, it, it included a lot of the poets from Kenward's circle. Mm -hmm. And we mm -hmm. studied, you know, writing in those kinds of styles. Something that you said, I'm actually going to jump a long way ahead into a question that I, I've, something that I experienced as I was reading the book. Basically, it's about the difference in their finances. Um, as you mentioned, you know, Kenward is well off. Um, he has family money and it affords him time and space and assistance. Lucia is not. She seems actually to be really struggling sometimes. She's living in a trailer for a chunk of the book. And, you know, I think maybe that led me to really sympathize with Lucia in a way that I, I, I didn't with him. You know, he seemed like, oh, he's a dilettante. Um, she is a real writer because she was struggling. Now, there's so much going on there. That's my stuff more than anything else. But I'm curious if you kind of felt a need to kind of protect them both, uh, you know, because you were close to both of them. You had reason to connect with both of them, um, you know, to protect Kenwood from idiots like me who are just like, oh, who is this guy? You know, and she's obviously, who am I? What do, you know, this is all I've read of both of their work. So what's your response to idiots like me who kind of, you know, build up this backstory about these people who I just know them through these letters that I've read? I definitely, you know, recognize that big difference in their lives and how that big difference in the finances that they had access to affected their work. Yeah. Kenward had never had to worry about money. He didn't have to have a day job to afford his writing at night. Mm -hmm. He could live the life he wanted, but also take very seriously his time to write and his dedication to writing as art. Mm. I mean, the money was there to afford him to live. Mm -hmm. But even so, you know, he wasn't like, that was one of my fears when I first went up to meet yeah. him was, you know, I don't know how rich people act. The only, you know, I'm suspicious of them. Right. But he was so down to earth. He didn't have that kind of like snobbery towards yeah. people that didn't have money. Whereas Lucia, you know, was struggled her whole life. She, yeah. you know, she had times when she had lots of money because of her husband's having lots of money, but she also, you know, struggled with alcoholism most of her life, which caused her to lose jobs when she had them. And she was also, you know, a single mother most of her life as well. And so she because she was always having job turnover, she never accrued money for retirement yeah. or anything like that. She only taught at the University of Colorado for six years, you know, and that was sort of like her, you know, most prestigious career, yeah. you know, like in terms of a job, at least with writing yeah. um, and associated with writing that she had in her life. And, you know, six years of <laughs> paying into the system in the United yeah. States doesn't get you anything. No. And so she writes in the book, you know, she would, you know, write letters to Kimward in the book about hoping to write between, you know, semester breaks, because yeah. I, I'm also a teacher in a university yeah. MFA program. And 
you know, that's what I look forward to. That little pause between, you yeah. know, spring semester and the next fall semester. Yeah. That's when I try to get my writing done. And um, she was also sick, right? And she yeah. she was very ill and she, it took all of her energy just to get around. And she was, finances, you know, yeah, like yeah, yeah. it took all of her energy to get around. She w was dependent on an oxygen tank to breathe. Um, you know, she had scoliosis as a child, which punctured a lung. Mm. She was also living at 9,000 feet above sea yeah. level where it's hard to breathe. And then, of course, she died ultimately of lung cancer. Um, so, you know, breathing was a struggle for her, as was paying those medical bills. Yeah, yeah. And going back to the connection between them of money and around money, you know, Kenward had an organization called Z Press, in mm -hmm. which he not only published writers like John Ashbery and Joe Brainerd, but also provided financial assistance yeah. to poets and artists in trouble or in financial need. And I think it actually began when a poet was in medical, had a medical need. Mm -hmm. And so he, you know, largely funded that from his own money and provided financial assistance to writers who needed it. And Lucia was one of those writers. You know, yeah. I think the last five or six years of her life, she was basically, you know, had access to her health care, had access to the trailer and then, you know, the apartment she rented in California, thanks to a grant from Z Press through, you know, Kenward Elmsley. Yeah. So let's get back to the letters. I'm sorry. I, I, uh, I couldn't hold back. Um, so one of the reasons that these are great letters to anthologize, I guess, is that they weren't young when they met. They were already, you know, mature people. They had what they described as an instant friendship. But because they had already had long lives, they had a lot of catching up to do. And since they were very seldom actually in the same physical space, they did that by letter, which is great for us because we also get to, you know, learn all that stuff about them. Um, it's a very satisfying correspondence uh, for us to read and to learn about them. I'm curious, though how it came about, um, you know, yes, Lucia I had heard of, but I hadn't heard of him. I mean, they're not like hugely famous people. Who is this book for? Is it for kind of people who really enjoy reading people's letters, people who like a particular kind of literature, people who knew them, their circles? Well, I think that, you know, all of those potential audiences that you mentioned were audiences I considered as a reason to, you know, try to put together this book, to try to sell it, to try to publish it. For me, I think a large impetus for doing it and who I probably was thinking of as I selected letters, because there were, you know, hundreds of letters that we didn't include. You know, the book yeah. includes about 40% of the actual letters. But I think I was thinking of writers. You know, mm -hmm. I feel like Writers, whether you're fiction writers or nonfiction writers or poets or librettists or lyricists, um, there's so much advice, I think, that can be found specifically about writing, about getting through periods when we're not writing, about, you know, responding to criticism, um, often very public criticism, but also just the way writers live and the importance that writers or any kind of artists that are true artists and writers give to their art. Mm -hmm. Because they both taught me so much, I saw them, you know, the potential for their teaching in the letters as I read through their letters. You know, I wanted to share it with my writing students. Like, oh, yeah, but yeah. one time Lucia said, Lucia was feeling the same thing that you're feeling. Yeah. They talk about craft. They talk about writer's block. They talk about tricks that they're using to get themselves to write, you know, when they're not writing. Yeah. So I yeah. really thought and think a large audience for the book is you know, people who want to be writers and, you know, just want information about what does it mean to be a writer and what kind of life might you have? You might be struggling to pay the bills every month. You know, you might be desperate to find a grant you know, that was going to allow you to write for two weeks. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, or, you know, you might have all the money in the world, but still other, you know, hindrances to you getting yeah. to the page. 
Yeah. And how do we overcome that and live a life that's dedicated to art? And, yeah. you know, that's what, you know, Lucia used to tell us, you know, about Kenmore's letters was, you know, this is the way an artist sees the world. But the, both of their letters show that, you know, yeah. the way that, that Lucia imagines a story when she sees, you know, a stranger or a strange car that she doesn't yeah. recognize, you know, pulling yeah. slowly by the front lawn, you know, yeah. and she's yeah. going to turn that into a story. And, yeah. you know, Kenward might witness something and or overhear a dialogue and then turn that into a really sort of abstract or kind of crazy kooky poem yeah. or you know song lyric yeah we'll be back with more of june's conversation with chip livingston after this When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money so you can make more. Most corporate credit cards offer points as incentives, but those points amount to less than their worth in real cash value. Ramp's business cards offer you cash back, real money in your pocket. Plus, you control who spends what with each vendor. And Ramp software collects and verifies receipts automatically, which means you'll stop wasteful spending and close your books in hours instead of days. Businesses that use Ramp add up to 5% to their bottom line the first year. If you're a decision maker, adding Ramp could be one of the best decisions you've ever made. And now get $250 when you join Ramp for free. Just go to Ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P dot com slash easy. Currents issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC. Terms and conditions apply. Hey, Slate listeners. Isaac Butler here. Just wanted to say if you're enjoying this podcast and you haven't subscribed yet, maybe you want to click that little diggly-doo that says subscribe, and that way you will never miss an episode. If you are already subscribing, thank you so much. If you wanted to go that little extra mile, why not leave us a good review or four stars or seven meow meow beans or whatever the rating system is in your podcast app of choice. Thank you so much. And hey, if you haven't subscribed to Slate Plus yet, really, honestly, what are you waiting for? Go to slate.com slash working plus. You get ad-free podcasts, bonus segments of shows like this one, whole bonus episodes of great shows like Slow Burn and Big Mood, Little Mood, and you get full access behind the paywall at a website you may have heard of called slate.com. Go to slate.com slash working plus to sign up today. And now let's continue with June's conversation with Chip Livingston. I'm curious about the logistics of of how you made the selection. So where were the letters? Uh, how did you get access to them? How did that kind of that whole side of it transpire and where did it happen? You know, it was a group effort for sure. I was organizing it and compiling and, you know, putting all the letters into, a, you know, <laughs> Word documents and, you know, then combining them into a larger master file. But the letters themselves were in various places. Some of them were physically in, you know, her son's homes in California. Mm. Some of them that she wrote to Kenward were collected in, you know, Kenward's home in New York. A lot of Kenward's material had been sent to the University of California, San Diego, which mm. has his archives. So many of the letters were there as well, mm. as well as some letters were in Lucia's archives at Harvard. Mm. So the letters were in different places, and it was hard. It was <laughs> crazy trying to figure out, you know, where they all were. But, you know, Kenward, a lot of his letters he had written on the computer, 
And so we still had access to his computer. And so there, many of his letters to her were saved as Word documents. Wow. And the ones from her to him, not at all. We didn't have anything uh-huh. saved. We yeah. had some of them were typed and sent to him, but even the typed ones were, you know, had handwritten annotations. But most of her letters to him were handwritten. And so then her son, Jeff Berlin, was sort of handling the correspondence for the family from her end. And Ron Paget, the poet and biographer and best friend of Kenward, was sort of handling. And he was in charge of, you know, Kenward Elmsley's estate. Mm. And so the executor of the literary estate. So he was handling correspondence that Kenward had. Both Jeff and Ron were, you know scanning into PDFs, <laughs> just physical copies of the letters yeah. and sending them to me. And yeah. then, you know, so many of them didn't have, we had parts of letters, you know, yeah. because, you know, the first pages were lost or the date wasn't put on them yeah. or the envelope had been lost. But so much of it was actually saved and collected in both of their homes or in their archives. And so the records were there. In fact, at Lucia's memorial service, in Boulder, Colorado, I went to that with Kenward. We flew from New York and Lucia's sons from California had brought a big paper bag full of letters that Kenward had sent to Lucia and brought them to Colorado to return to Kenward in case he Uh wanted to keep them. And also just, you know, working for Kenward while Lucia was still alive, Mm -hmm. when he would mail her a letter, he would print it out He would have me photocopy it. He would keep photocopies of the letters he sent to her as well. And then I would go to the post office and mail it for him. As well as, you know, um, he would, you know, when he got a delightful letter from Lucia, he would read it to me or show Mm -hmm. it to me at the Mm -hmm. breakfast table. Similar to how Lucia would show his letters to guests that visited her home or she would bring them to class and read them to students. Right, right. And so, obviously, in the book, you see that they, especially, actually, especially Lucia is often saying to Kenwood, you know, these should be published. I hope people, I would love for people to see your wonderful writing. Uh, So, was your sense always that they both were very kind of conscious of that some people, other people would see these at some point, and that they were kind of prepared for that? Do you think that even was maybe conscious in their minds as they were writing? I don't think either of them actually ever thought that the letters would be published. Mm. Lucia, you know, she was not that well known. And so she would have never dreamed of having the success that she ultimately has, but also that someone would be interested in her letters. Yeah. You know, like she just, that was the way she communicated. Yeah. Her letters are so great. Yeah. You know, she wrote as she wrote stories, you know, like just so honestly. Yeah, And so I don't think either of them actually paid attention to like, uh, this letter is so good, it might get published <laughs> one day. Right. However, you know, Kenward did include a letter or a few letters that he wrote to Lucia in a work of art that he put a review of his songs and, um, and show lyrics and poems that was staged in a show called Lingo Land. Mm-hmm. And he actually showed himself, you know, like at his typewriter on stage writing a letter to Lucia. Wow. And so that was, you know, included in a work, but also just sort of like this was a review of his life. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, she was a good, a big part of his life for that decade that they were such close friends. Yeah. I'm curious, obviously, um, you know, as all good compilations of correspondence do, you know, you offer footnotes to help readers kind of identify, uh, you know, the the people who are being referred to. Again, you know, I know that you can't provide context for every piece of, you know, for everything that might come up. Um, But there were some kind of historical events that I sort of sometimes thought, oh, I'm curious why you didn't kind of go into more detail. One of them was around something you were a little bit, um, I don't want to say coy because that's almost negative. And I think you were actually being very respectful of Kenwood, which is about, you know, he was a rich man. He lived to be 93. 
Um, you know, anybody who read his New York Times obituary would see that he was exploited uh, by some of the people who worked with him when he was in his later years, sadly, a not altogether uh, rare occurrence. Um, I wondered kind of how you made your decisions, kind of how much to talk about that kind of thing, you know, almost like hard things in life, hard things that might be sort of embarrassing to him. How, how did you kind of handle dilemmas like that? Well, it's a really good question and certainly something that I was aware of and that Lucia was aware of. You know, one of the reasons she wanted me to go work for him was because the two prior assistants had stolen credit cards or, yeah. you know, like been, you know, f let go because of, you know, circumstances where they were taking advantage of his money. Yeah. And so she was aware of that and knew that, you know, I would be honest and could you know, not give a shit about money <laughs> um, and didn't expect it, you know, because I was right. I was going to be a writer like Lucia. You know, yeah, I just hoped yeah. one day I would have a job teaching to pay the bills. Yeah. You know, um, and so that was certainly something that she was aware of and I was aware of in terms of the book and editing the book. I really only I sort of I guess was not coy, I don't think, but no. For legal reasons, you know, like we didn't uh, include the names yeah, of some okay. of those assistants. Um, there were, you know, some letters that I or some parts of letters that I didn't include where, you know, Kim Ward's writing about his relationship or his, you know, friendship with C.W., who's the assistant at the beginning of the book. Mm -hmm. And because, you know, I didn't he didn't turn into a person that was a real big aspect of Kim Ward's life. Yeah. I didn't want to give so much emphasis to this person yeah. who then wasn't going to be around for the rest of the book. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, the really big exposure of the theft that, you know, made the news, that happened after Lucia had passed mm, away. Mm, mm. But there were, you know, like, but we talk about, or we talk about, <laughs> she talks <laughs> about in the book, you know, my sort of jealousy or my feelings about a, someone they called Mr. Oz. Yeah. Well, you know, like maybe two months after Lucia died, Mr. Oz, I got the phone call from Kenward to change the locks yeah. because, you know, Mr. Oz was no longer allowed in the house. And yeah. he wanted me to, Kenward wanted me to change the locks. Yeah. It was an assistant after that, you know, that Mr. Oz actually got to to work with me during mm -hmm. the same time I was there. He was working at a new person came on um, to, that worked as Kenward's chauffeur initially and yeah. he you know stole an andy warhol he stole oh a marcel duchamp he stole 3.2 million dollars in cash wow and i was actually involved in that because i was part of the trial you know wow. that went to trial he was convicted he went to jail he was sentenced yeah. to 10 years and so but that didn't happen during their correspondence yes yeah, yeah. You so know, it's about so it maintaining focus in some ways right so it wouldn't be I, I mean, I, of course, there's more to the story, <laughs> you know, yeah, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. but it's not that part of the story. Like if I wanted to tell the story of the assistants taking advantage of Kenward and just, you know, how that might occur in anyone's life, um, that would be a different book and yep. a book after their correspondence ended. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. I'm curious, um, Chip. You know, as you've mentioned, your report, you're a nonfiction writer. It was your commitment to art uh, that allowed you to meet Lucia, to be introduced to Kenwood, to get involved in their particular world. And I'm curious how working on the book specifically, more, you know, you've mentioned how being in their circles uh, changed you. But did working on this book have any effect on your writing, do you think? I don't think it has mm. had an effect on my writing as much as it's had on my teaching. Oh. I think that seeing Lucia, you know, and also knowing the other side of the story, you know, like as being her student, like when she writes about students sending her work, yeah. I was one of the students who after I graduated, you know, we all wanted Lucia to read everything we wrote. Yeah. Well, she didn't have time to read everything we wrote. And like now as a teacher, I understand, oh, <laughs> I don't have time to yeah. read all these wonderful things my former students are writing. Yeah. But also she taught me so much about, you know, honoring 
the act of creation or the mm -hmm. act of the imagination. And I think that comes through so much in their letters. You know, both of them held such high honor to the act of writing. Yeah. You know, Lucia thought it was a miracle anytime anyone wrote something, that they took the time to write it. Yeah. And, you know, that's sort of like how I try to approach every student writing, you know, yeah. before I get into like, hey, you know, this doesn't make any sense or this ending, you know, isn't satisfying or, you know, you have mm. too many fragments. <laughs> you know, first I'm like, this is a miracle. Yeah. It's a miracle yeah. that you actually wrote something. Yeah. And, you know, and honor that act of creation before looking at, you know, how we might make it better or what we don't understand. And I have to say, too, that one thing that really struck me as I was reading, again, especially Lucia's work, of how much her writing and her, clearly, her inability to be dishonest, not to, you know, to, she didn't disguise hard things. She didn't take hard things out of her work. And it caused her endless problems. It caught, you know, lost friendships. She would be cut off from people because some of the things in her life were really hard kind of weird things but she couldn't not tell the full story and there's something just so inspiring about that even just reading these letters it's kind of weird to say a true artist because it suggests that other people are you know false artists but but really it, there's something so remarkable about her inability to be dishonest about her life yeah that's true she is forthcoming. And I just admire that in other teachers as well and other writers when they're talking about their process. Mm -hmm. Just, you know, like there's just something that is so attractive or um, I don't know, even obsessing when somebody is just honest and doesn't yeah, have yeah. that, you know, facade up. Um, where I think sometimes Kenward had the facade because yeah. he was protecting himself or protecting, you know, the fact that he had a lot of money that potentially yeah. someone might like him for yeah. instead of for his actual lyrics. Yeah. Um, whereas I think Lucia is just like, yeah. nobody's going to like me anyway, so I'll just tell the truth. <laughs> yeah. You know, as I read this book, it made me want to have somebody that I had this kind of almost obsessive correspondence with. You know, the, the cliche at least is that letter writing is dead. When I was young, I wrote a ton of letters. I don't write any anymore. Uh, did it turn you into a letter writer? Were you already a letter writer? Did it make you more of a correspondent? I was already a letter writer. I um, did have long, over years and years, decades, um, friendships that were primarily through the mail when I was younger. Wow. Um, some of that, of course, has changed now. And, and more of it is, you know, with WhatsApp messages or, you know, long audio messages sent oh. over the phone now. Oh. Um, it made me aware of the quality of like even just emails between friends, you know, like of taking the time to be thoughtful with each yeah. other. Yeah. Also, Lucia and I wrote letters mm. as well. So I have some of the letters, you know, it's funny too, you know, like when she was writing about Mr. Oz in the book, you know, like to Kenward, like, oh, I, you know, Chip's so silly. I can't imagine what he's thinking or why he would be jealous. Yeah. But then she would be writing to me like, you've got to get rid of Mr. Oz. <laughs> you know, I knew he was trouble. You yeah. Know? So, yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah. in that way, you know, she wasn't always so you know, honest with Kenward in terms of, you know, what she thought about some of those assistants. But, you know, there she was certainly writing that to me. Yeah. And now, you know, like even in one of my classes that I've been giving over the last couple of years, I used a lot of, you know, like I said, I used excerpts from their letters to yeah. show points um, regarding craft in my classes. Yeah. Well, my students this year decided because of the book, Love Lucia, uh, the letters between Lucia Berlin and Kim Ward Elmsley, that they were going to start writing each other letters. And so they like, on their own, you know, I didn't have anything to do with it, but I was really sort of happy they had done that. They put all their names in a hat and they <laughs> paired up two people, you know, randomly. And they've been writing letters to each other now for about six months. Wow, <laughs> that's amazing. I love that. Chip Livingston, thank you so much for giving us more background on this incredibly interesting book of correspondence between 
two writers who are, I am now much more appreciative of their work and their thinking and their commitment to art. Thank you for being on Working. Thank you so much for having me. Up next, June and I will talk more about what we can learn from the letters of great writers. We'll also discuss overly confessional writing, figuring out your audience, and when to and not to be discreet. Stick around. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. June, I absolutely loved this interview. Before we talk about it, I just have to get a plug in here because a name that came up in the interview is a writer who's very important to me. And that is the uh, poet, artist, writer, man about town, Joe Brainerd. Listeners, if you've never read Joe Brainerd, actually all of his work is collected in an omnibus edition, or you can just go out and buy his incredible, massively influential uh, work, I Remember Today. So do yourself a favor pick up some Joe Brainerd. All right. Now to talk about your interview. Were you familiar with Lucia Berlin before you read this book? So I knew her name. That is to say, I knew who she was. I bet I could have answered a question about her work at a trivia night, but I had never read her. And so are you like a general fan of collections of letters? Is that a thing that you read for pleasure? I absolutely love collections of correspondence. So I, wait, so is this just because you're like a really nosy person? Is that what it is? Are you? That's exactly right. You are. N- there's nothing incorrect. <laughs> yes. No, no shame. So am I. That's why we're interviewers, right? That's exactly right. I First of all, I think they're really fun to dip into, which, you know, in these days of super short attention spans is, is something I appreciate. But, you know, there are a few other things. A few weeks ago, you and I did an episode of Working Overtime about failure, if listeners, if you haven't heard that yet. And I believe in that episode, I mentioned that artists' letters are one of the few places where they talk openly about failures or stumbles. You know, there's there's a lot of working out of things and, you know, asking for advice and receiving advice. And I find that really appealing. I think Chip is absolutely right that they're a great place to get an unvarnished or at least a less varnished look at, you know, the artist's life. And I usually buy collections that involve writers I'm particularly interested in, but it can be a great place to learn more about people that you kind of think, I don't know if I want to read a big book by that person, but hey, I sure will read their letters because, you know, the editors, or a good editor at least, will do some handholding with, you know, footnotes explaining who and what they're talking about. It's really fascinating to me that you talked both about the discretion necessary to do this kind of project, some of which is legally mandated, but some of which is just being a decent person. You know, they didn't write these letters necessarily knowing they would be published, whatever. And contrasting that with the kind of enormous totalizing, perhaps problematic honesty Mm. that Lucia Berlin had, which was very beneficial to her work and very detrimental to her personal relationships. Uh, In a way, this collection's existence and your enjoyment and the deep feelings you had about it may actually be a sign that you don't always have to risk all your personal relationships for the sake of great art. What, What do you think about this kind of balance? This book really did bring out like some really strong reactions in me. And that was another thing that I was very conflicted about. I 
admired Lucia for the honestly super ill-advised openness that she apparently <laughs> was, you know, couldn't not share. You know, I really got the sense reading these letters that she was just always on the point of oversharing and constantly trying to resist that urge. You know, for example, she got some financial support from an organization and she really, really needed the money. But she kept writing to Kenwood basically saying they wouldn't give me the money if they knew I'd done X. And she was always on the point of telling the people about X, you know, that she'd done this shocking thing. And if they knew about this shocking thing, and so she was going to tell them about this shocking thing. And Isaac, they really were very shocking things. So, you know, my psychoanalyzing of this person I never met tells me that she kind of had a self-destructive streak. And by admiring that, I'm maybe encouraging other people to be equally self-destructive, which the rational me doesn't think that way at all. But you could tell from the tone of my voice in the interview that I actually did rather admire the aspect of Lucia Berlin's personality. I'm very, very conflicted. There's no other way for it about that. What do you think? I mean, I think that's a really productive conflict to sit within and it's not resolvable. Mm. Do you know what I mean? I mean, I think you can't help but admire someone who's totally uncompromising about some value they have, even if that value is terrible for the people around them, uh, until you actually have to deal with someone like that. That's that's a different story. (laughs) Um, I, I think one of the reasons why we love fictional protagonists who are like that is they allow us to experience some of that in a very safe way because no real person is is getting hurt, you know? Yeah. Uh, at the same time, I think there's a whole cottage industry that particularly targets young women writers, you know, in their early to mid twenties to try to get them to write confessional essays that Mm -hmm. will live on the internet forever. Uh, and it's really predatory. I mean, it's almost vampiric, you know, there was a whole series at a website called XO Jane famously called it happened to me. And every time I read one of those, I was like, this is no one should have allowed you to write this. No one should have published it. The fact that you were encouraged to is kind of evil. I mean, it was really, you know, I just felt like particularly young women, can sometimes be told a certain kind of radical self-destructive honesty is the way to get their work out there. And so that's the part of it I don't have conflictive feelings about. I think that's wrong and bad. And the the rest of it, though, I'm just like, well, I mean, you know, there's a reason why everyone was so into girls for so long was because the protagonist was so relentless about, you know, the things she was going after, you know, whatever it is. And um, those kinds of relentless, uncompromising artists, the Lucia Berlins of the world, the, the David Wojnarowiczs of the world, yep. you know, yep. uh, we, there's a reason why we admire them, but I have known some people like that and, and, Ugh. and it, it's a difficult thing to be around. Yeah. I mean, this also just came up in another book that I just read, a really fantastic book called Trailed by Catherine Miles. It's a sort of reinvestigation of a crime, the murder of two women that happened in a national park in Virginia. And it's one of those stories where the writer becomes obsessed. You know, the investigation takes over her life in ways that are clearly not healthy, which she recognizes and acknowledges. And I just think very strongly that should not be a requirement for writing a book. Writing a book or making a podcast, because it definitely happens in podcasts where you basically have to give up your whole life because you're on the phone 24 hours a day with somebody in prison or whatever the thing is, like that should not be a requirement for art at the same time. I really enjoyed reading this very good writer's account of recognizing what was going on and just really also being very driven by a sense of justice to figuring something out. So, yeah, I agree with you completely about um, what my former colleague, Laura Bennett, I believe, dubbed the first person industrial complex. Like that is not good under any circumstances, but sometimes a little bit of, of extremism can be very good to read. Ugh. I love that you asked Chip 
who the book was for. That is a question that I am often reluctant to ask for some reason because it feels, I don't know, crass or something. Um, uh, I mean, that's my issue. I'm not saying you were crass, obviously. But, you know, also some artists think about their audience, some artists don't. You know, my last episode was with Ali Slagle who writes recipes and she's very, very conscious of who she's writing for. Obviously, when you're editing a collection of someone else's writing, that's something you have to think about. But I'm, I'm curious about your work as you hit this big, uh, book deadline, you know, everyone who writes a nonfiction proposal has to include in it who they think the audience is for the book. But beyond that paragraph that you had to write, is this something you're thinking about while you write it? And if so, who's your book for? Well, before I answer that very good question, you mentioned having to explicitly talk about who you think the book's audience will be mm-hmm. when you write a proposal. And that's one of the parts of creating a proposal that can seem just super annoying. I think every writer... Well, yeah. I mean, you want to just write down, like, uh, my audience is people who like good books. Thank you very much, because I write good books. Exactly. Or you just want to say, this is not my job. I am not a marketer. Or, you know, just get on your high horse. I certainly had that feeling. But actually, it was really, really useful Uh, just to help me get in that frame of mind. Who is this for? Who am I writing for? Like, yeah, you need to know who your audience is to pitch the book appropriately. And so my book, which just as a reminder, uh, tells some of the stories of lesbian history through six archetypal spaces, um, is for anybody interested in history, specifically cultural history, social history. But I do have a couple of specific groups in mind. I am writing this for the women who did this work, you know, who built the infrastructure that the places I'm writing about represent, who had what are honestly often crummy jobs that pay very little. I mean, that when you retire, if you can retire, your social security check will be a lot smaller than it would have been if you'd taken a different kind of job. And, you know, those people have not received the credit and attention they deserve. And another group, I have in mind are young queer people who, in many ways, I very much sympathize with and agree with on just about everything, but who I think sometimes write off older women and the work that they did in an unfortunate and unfair way. So I also want to set the record straight for those people, too. Well, that's all the time we have for this week's show. Uh, If you have enjoyed what you've just listened to, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And here, for the final time this week, is your Slate Plus pitch. Slate Plus members get full access behind the paywall on Slate.com. You get bonus segments on episodes like this one. And you get to support everything we do right here on Working. Go to Slate.com slash Working Plus to sign up today. Thank you so much to Chip Livingston and to our amazing producer, Cameron Drews. And please join us next week for Karen Han's conversation with chef and doctor Yoon Sung. Until then, get back to work. <laughs> <laughs>